Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Middle Seats, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. I am the leader of the Neighborhood Watch, Andrew Auger, and I am going to be leading this discussion here on The Middle Seats podcast. Now let's meet the rest of the members of the Neighborhood Watch. He's the all-purpose kind of guy who volunteers to be the troop leader for both the Cub Scouts and the Brownies, Mr. Nate Lungarini. How are we doing, everyone? Hope that we're having a pleasant night. Expect Christmas wreaths, popcorn, and cookies delivered to your door soon. What's your favorite kind of Girl Scout cookie? Real fast. Samoas. Oh. Oh, what? Didn't even have to think. (laughs) And he's the guy that complains at the town meeting that the Dinkelberg's dog keeps peeing on his grass, even though that grass is technically owned by the state, so he shouldn't give a crap about it, Mr. Jake Hensler. Wouldn't you complain too? If it's not my grass, no. Well, then no, I wouldn't complain about that. We're going to get over the stereotype one day of me being an ass, by the way. I am an ass, but not that bad. <laughs> it's, it's highly doubtful. It's highly doubtful. But anyway, the Middle Seats Podcast is, like we said, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. Our show is divided into three segments. We start the night with Lobby Talk, where one member of the crew picks a topic, and we kind of just ramble about around that. I am the person picking the topic this week, and we'll get into that in a moment. Then we have our news segment, where we dissect the biggest news items of the week, And then we move into our feature review, which this week is of George Clooney's Suburbicon. So guys, this was a a pretty good movie-watching week for me, because I usually don't get a lot of time to go back and visit the classics, but I saw a lot of Halloween classics that I've never seen for the first time this week. Oh yeah, what'd you say? Uh, The original Nightmare on Elm Street, I saw The Thing, I saw Halloween, I saw Friday the 13th, and I saw Gremlins over the span of the last week or so. Wow. Which, yeah. Gremlins is another one of those not quite Halloween, not quite Christmas movies. Yeah, I was I was surprised. I didn't I didn't know it was set at Christmas, so I was like, mm-hmm. which which kind is this? It's like that and the nightmare before Christmas are kind of in that in-between period. Um all were all were pretty great except for Friday the thirteenth, which is a pretty schlocky movie. I see why it's influential, but it's it's not a great movie. And Nightmare on Elm Street was and Halloween especially were excellent. And so was the thing. Um yeah, I actually really enjoyed the thing. That's one of the few I've, on that list that I've seen and enjoyed. I've never actually seen the original uh, uh, the thing. I've I think I've seen every every other movie you listed at least once, but I've never seen the thing. It's great. It was really really good. Um, just atmosphere wise, John Carpenter's excellent, um, and his direction, especially in Halloween too. Man, that movie doesn't actually have as much violence as you would think it does. Not at all. But, no, not at all. Um, but. I recommend all of those movies, even Friday the 13th, which I don't, I think it's probably, it's like a three out of five movie. Uh, it's, it's cheap, but it's, it's fun. Um, yeah. But I recommend all of them uh, next Halloween because this will be coming out after Halloween. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was, I was actually going to say when I first saw Friday the 13th, I, I wasn't disappointed and same with Nightmare on Elm Street. I actually enjoyed Nightmare on Elm Street quite a bit, like you were saying. And that's a good topic. Um, for another day, some of our favorite horror movies, probably next Halloween. But this time, let's talk about 
another topic in lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. So guys, we're fast approaching Oscar season. And, you know, this is the time where the big performances of the year come out. Um, And it gets me thinking retrospectively about the last decade or so, about the last 20 years or so, and who's been doing the most to compile their resume. And that got me thinking, it's, it's, it's pretty, you've got your big names in there that are consistently good every year. Um, but who stands out the most among them? And I think right now we're going to go through it almost in like a movie fight style. We're going to go through and we're going to defend our candidate. Who is the best actor, male actor specifically, female actress, I think would be a good topic for a different time. Um, but male actor working today. And the inspiration I got for this list is when I saw Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in Stronger a couple weeks ago, uh, where he plays Jeff Bowman, who who was severely injured from the waist down during the Boston Marathon and had to learn how to walk again. Um, and he's tr- just tremendous in that movie. And that really got me thinking about the range Jake Gyllenhaal has, the consistency he brings to a movie, and just the steady presence he has throughout Hollywood. He's kind of he's been like kind of an underrated guy. It feels like Nightcrawler was his big coming out party. I mean, he's he was great in movies before that, um, but back in 2014, that was when we really gave him his credit where credit was due, and was able to talk about all the great stuff he's done throughout his career. Um, and he's a guy that worked kind of in the shadows before that, but now I think everybody's looking at him and realizing just he is one of our best actors working today. In my opinion, he's probably the best one working today. Um, now, you guys have different choices. I made you come up with different choices, even if you thought Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> was the best. Um, Nate, let's start with you. Who do you think is the best actor working today? For me, hands down, and I believe that most of America will agree with me, it's Tom Hanks. The guy's been around for a long, long time, and in his best movies, he is perfect. Um, I think he really encapsulates his human characters really, really well. The highlights for me, definitely Captain Phillips, Saving Private Ryan, Castaway. Those are all really great emotional performances that give a lot of range. But in addition to that, he's done everything from voice acting in Toy Story, uh, some romantic comedies, some action movies in like The Da Vinci Code. He just has a great presence in a lot of different places, and he does great things there. Even in his subpar movies, He's the best part of the movie, and I think that's why Tom Hanks is a national treasure, and he's the best actor doing great work today. You know what people forget about Tom Hanks is that he started as a comedian and eventually moved into drama, and that that alone is super impressive to me that he's come so far. Jake, who was your champion? I I wanted to venture a little outside of of the realm. Like I feel like like people like my mom. If I were to ask my mom or like a general moviegoer who the best who the best actor is right now, they're going to say people like like DiCaprio and Denzel and Morgan Freeman and those kind of people. And I wanted to venture out of the obvious. And it was, I had it down to a couple candidates, but I'm going to go with one of my absolute personal favorites, Tom Hardy. I just think everything I've seen Tom Hardy in, he's been so, he's been so good to amazing in everything I've seen him in. And on the flip side, Whenever I hear his name being talked about in a project, I can see him playing pretty much anybody. And I think he could do pretty much anything at this point in his career. The thing about Tom Hardy for me, um, and both of those choices are excellent choices, 
we're basically only having to argue because of the nature of the lobby talk. Well, mine's the best anyway, so okay. Okay, but uh, here here's the reason why I would pick Jake Gyllenhaal over the two of them. They're both excellent actors, but Jake Gyllenhaal's range is better than the both of them. Jake Gyllenhaal, the roles that he play are s- severely different than like the roles that Tom Hardy and uh, Tom Hanks play. Tom Hanks, he's a, he's a great actor. He plays different shades of the everyman. But in most movies, he's he's embodying some kind of everyman persona. Tom Hardy, on the flip side of that, is always playing some kind of rugged badass. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Those are things that he's very good at. Um, but at the same time, Jake Gyllenhaal can go from being this creepy, creepy sociopath to this broken alcoholic boxer like he did in Southpaw to what he's doing right now, the everyman role of a man that lost his ability and his will to walk and just kind of convert that into hope. So that's what that's what made me cling to Gyllenhaal specifically is just his range is off the charts. Like I'll I'll agree with you that Gyllenhaal definitely has range, but I think we can all agree that his best roles are when he's the the quiet sociopath version. His most popular movies by far are stuff like Donnie Darko, uh, we mentioned Nightcrawlers. He just kind of has that creepy vibe, and he's very excellent doing it, and he is fascinating to watch doing it. But for me personally, I can't connect to his characters nearly as well as I can to someone like Tom Hanks. Well, I I think we keep overlooking with Jake Gyllenhaal is um, his nomination for Brokeback Mountain, which I've personally never seen. Me neither. That's why I haven't brought it up, yeah. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard he's just unbelievable in in that role and he's him and Heath Ledger have phenomenal chemistry which you know I I have yet to see the movie I'd, I'd like to if not anything for for the for the performances in the story but um I wouldn't disagree with you Andrew Jake Gyllenhaal is a phenomenal actor but I think his his breakout was probably a little bit before even you were saying like Nightcrawler I definitely agree shows his range but I think between Donnie Darko as a kid and Brokeback Mountain showing his uh his Oscar chops I think he's been a household name long before uh, Nightcrawler, personally. I'm not saying, like, household name, per se, but more, like, I don't know, more we recognize him as a A-list acting talent. More mm. than, like, he didn't, he never got the recognition that he would, that he deserved, really, it feels like. Um, he was just always a name that was around. Uh, I, I actually think Prisoners uh, broke him out a little bit, too. People, I mean, Prisoners is a great movie, but I thought, I just rewatched it, um... Like about a, about a month ago, and he's great in that too. Yeah, well, I think everybody came out of Prisoners talking about Hugh Jackman, and he kind of lost a little bit of the spotlight there. Um, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's excellent in Prisoners too. That was another one that I neglected to talk about. Moving off of Jake Gyllenhaal, guys, defend your picks more. Help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm fighting for my guy. I don't know what Jake's doing. I, I wanted to go in order. Over here. You, you went first, so I <laughs> want to talk about Gyllenhaal. So now we can go with Nate and Tom Hanks, and then we can finish off with me. Fair. Okay. Again, I. I think that Tom Hanks has just as much of a range as Jake Gyllenhaal, maybe on a different side of that range, like his thresholds at a different point there and back. But I think that just makes him all the more relatable. We've seen him do a whole lot of different character work in a lot of different roles over a very long career. And that's just why if you don't like him in one movie, you're going to like him in... 10 different others just because he's done so much in the industry. Like one of my personal favorites is this weird movie called Joe versus the volcano. And (laughs) 
it's not like a particularly great movie, but he starts the movie off as this really down to the dumps, going through the motions business guy sitting at a desk and ends the movie on such an uplifted note that it it connected to me. And I think that everyone can find a movie that Tom Hanks connects with you with, whether it's Forrest Gump, whether it's Cast Away, anything that he does, he brings a great presence to the screen. I love him. The only blips on his radar for me personally are <laughs> anytime he taught, he's with the Da Vinci Code. Any anytime he's in that universe, he just looks so bored out of his mind. But he still is the best thing about the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I enjoy Angels vs Demons uh, or Angels and Demons. Angels vs Demons <laughs> <laughs> would have been maybe a slightly more interesting movie that way. But still, I enjoyed I enjoyed that one. I thought it was a fun little flick. Yeah, and I know I know age um, attributes to this. I would say Hanks for sure has the most decorated resume, but. Like, Hanks is absolutely one of the, the first names that comes to mind when you think greatest actors, even of all time. Like, his name is in the conversation for all time, for sure. And that's something Gyllenhaal and Hardy can work at as they go in their careers. Um, but for right now, Hanks is for sure the most the most decorated. I don't think either of our champions have the performance that uh, Hanks has in Forrest Gump um, and a couple other movies. I think, you know, they have a little ways to go before they reach that level. So I think Nate's, Nate's choice would be the popular opinion. Um, because it's the right one. Right. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to give you a penalty. <laughs> Let, let's let's talk about Hardy. You're right. Hardy does play a lot of variations of that of that badass, but the it goes charming, cool guy in Inception to psychopath in Bronson to straight up badass in Mad Max to complete arrogant asshole in Revenant to creepy, mysterious, exciting, thrilling as Bane. Like he just, and I will actually counter that with Locke. Tell me, tell me an actor you could watch drive a car and answer phone calls for an hour and a half. Tom Hanks or Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> no, <laughs> nice try. Though. Not, not the same. I don't think they could handle Locke like Tom Hardy did. I, I disagree with that. Yeah. I don't. Um, maybe Hanks. I could see Hanks doing it. I don't know about Gyllenhaal. I, I, I could see, see Hanks doing that. I see. I can see him both doing it personally, but we'll agree to disagree on that point. Something that really interested <laughs> me as we wrap up this conversation here: not one of us said Daniel Day Lewis. Why is that? Well, because I'm trying to venture out of the, the popular names because he's he's phenomenal in everything. He's the method actor. Like, it's yeah. notorious how much he gets into his roles. But honestly, I think the reason I didn't pick him is that he hasn't been in some of my favorite movies. Like, his best performances is There Will Be Blood, Lincoln. And I enjoyed those movies, but I didn't love them. Um and I think that just kind of affects my favoritism there. I think for me, it's more he's not consistently in the public eye. And he doesn't do a lot of movies either. <laughs> he does one like every five years. That's kind of that's kind of the reason why I, I avoided him in this conversation. Because wow, as amazing as he is and as amazing as we expect him to be probably in Phantom Thread coming up, um, he just doesn't do a lot of movies, you know? So it's hard to call him the best actor alive when these other guys are consistently putting out great work when he's putting out great work but every couple of years yeah and i mean every performance he gives is some of is one of the greatest in that year every single time but you're right he only does one every few years so you know I don't, i'm trying i was trying to avoid the biggest stereotypical names like i was looking at people like hardy fastbender cumberbatch you know like up and like up and coming and well known but not quite the the it actor per se. Yeah, you know? way to be hipster, Jake. 
Yeah. I'm glad out of those three you picked Hardy because Fastbender's on my bad list right now. <laughs> yeah. That guy needs help picking roles. I think yeah. the one uh, the one positive for Hardy for sure is that his choice of characters is pretty darn good and they really play to his strengths well. And I think that's why he's in this conversation. I think we can all agree there's no wrong answer here. And Nate, if you do, it's a 15-yard penalty. So don't. <laughs> I'll take 20 yards for Tom Hanks, man. <laughs> um, but there are plenty of great actors out there. Be sure to check out their work. Be sure to check out the work of all three of the actors that we mentioned because they're doing some amazing stuff right now. That'll close the doors on Lobby Talk, and that'll move us into our news segment. And this just in, a news break special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So guys, there, there was a variety of actually pretty decent-sized news today. We, we know that Ben Mendelsohn's going to be the Captain Marvel villain. Um, we, we know a couple other things that are coming up in the show. But the one that really, I hope, didn't sneak under the radar is the one that will be affecting moviegoers widespread the most over the next year. And that is Regal announced earlier this week that they are going to be experimenting in 2018 with something they call dynamic pricing. Uh, there's a bunch of complicated business terms for it. Here's the gist of it. Say we go to see Star Wars, and Star Wars makes $900 gajillion like we expected to. Regal will take the price of a $13 Star Wars ticket and raise it to $17 based on the in-demandness of the movie. Now say Blade Runner 2049, great movie, but it's underperforming at the box office. Regal will take the $13 of that ticket and bring the price down to $8. The idea is that the supply and demand... Um, kind of like a concert or a sporting event would work for a big movie would allow them to make more profit off of that. Whereas on a bomb, people will be more enticed to give it a chance if the price is lower. Now, there's a lot of different variables that go into this story. And I think all three of us have very strong opinions about this because this could really, really change the movie going experience as we know it. Kind of like MoviePass is that we talked about last week. Lot to digest here. Jake, what do you think about this idea. Uh, it's just Regal, you said, right? As of right now, yes. Um, it's definitely an, an interesting idea, but I don't know that it's it's a good one because something like Star Wars, if Star if they're gonna draw if they're gonna jump up Star Wars to example twenty bucks a ticket, I don't know if people are gonna be as willing to spend twenty and if you're going in a group, say say your family wants to go out to to see Star Wars, get popcorn and everything, that's a hundred dollar day to see Star Wars. I don't know if people are going to want to do that opposed to $660, you know, or $55, whatever it's going to be. Now, so for us who have to see everything, that's great because we could have seen Geostorm for $4 and not cared as much. But if Star Wars jumps up to 20 not only when people, I think general audience members may shy away from it, guys like us might shy away from seeing it twice. We might only see it once and then wait for it to come out on DVD. So I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of risk here. Nate, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna second these opinions. This idea makes me nervous. It kind of makes me a little angry too, uh, because we live in a time where the headlines have been uh, less people are going to the movies. One of the worst box office seasons in 20 years, and the idea of raising prices to get more people to go to the movies seems completely backwards to me. Like, I can't understand how they would even consider this idea um, because blockbusters are the only things that are bringing in people to the movie theaters because on-demand has come in, Netflix has come in and completely changed the industry. 
So raising tickets seems like the absolute worst decision to get more people to go. You you both are so on point here. So on point. I, I'm so proud. <laughs> um, yeah, so the big narrative is less people are going to the movies. Like Nate said, th- this is not the solution for that. Logically thinking, people people that don't go to the movies that often, you know, when do they go to the movies? They go to see Star Wars. They go to see Avengers. They go to see all of – they go to see – Harry Potter, th- things like that. Harry Potter, big things like that. Exactly. Big blockbusters. That's when they are going to the movies. So why would you make it harder for them to go? Why would you make it harder? Like that's – business-wise, it boggles the mind that that's the idea. It just generates cynicism in audiences. Absolutely. Like people already have the – mentality that uh going to the movies they're gonna overcharge me for uh, popcorn and candy it's gonna be like 10 bucks just for that so i'm just gonna sneak it in from the cvs across the street this is this is not helping and like i get i get lowering prices for smaller movies so say like like suburbicon which we're reviewing today or blade runner 2049 say those movies aren't making a lot i get dropping those prices um like i think i paid 14 dollars the suburbicon today which i was a little like are you kidding me $14. $14. So like if they dropped that to ten nine, I'd be like, great. Maybe a couple other people would think about it. But upping the prices for the big movies is going to drive people away. Jake, you absolutely nailed it when you brought up the idea of repeat viewings. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like how do blockbusters become blockbusters? The difference between a billion and a half dollar movie and a billion dollar movie is the fans that go to see Star Wars six times instead of three. Right. Yeah. So why would they why would they even venture back out if they're going to have to pay more again? We're talking about how the idea of like the price is going up. It's oh, it's in demand, kind of like a concert or a sporting venue. That's different. That's completely different. I heard uh I was listening to a podcast the other day and they he nailed the analogy. Like if the Yankees are my favorite team, I can't have the Yankees come to my home and play the game for me right in front of me. I can do that with movies anytime I want. So yeah. it, it mm-hmm. that logic does not work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds like we are all in agreement that we don't like this idea, and I hope that it <laughs> fails spectacularly this summer so it doesn't become a widespread thing. I was going to say, Regal may lose a lot of money and audience members with, with you know, blockbusters. Like, like and any, any kind of blockbuster that people would normally see, like myself, as much as I may have liked, you know, Star Wars Force Awakens, I saw it twice. I would be very weary about paying an extra twenty dollars to see it twice, right? And Regal Regal will make more money in the short term, Jake. Like the first year or two, their profits will probably go up way, way more. It's in the long term game that they're going to have problems because this is going to dissuade people from going back to the movies. That's that's it's as simple as that. So yeah, I think it's very, very easy for us to say we're against the dynamic pricing idea unless its prices go down. For, <laughs> I mean, that's obviously we want to save money in any chance that we can. Right. One of the big movies that'll be coming out in the next couple of years is a part of the DCEU, Shazam. Uh, he's not as well known as Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, but he is a major character uh, in the DC comics. And we finally know who's going to be playing Shazam in David F. Sandberg's film in 2019. It's going to be Zachary Levi. Uh, now, Zachary Levi is best known for the NBC spy television show Chuck, where he's very charming as the lead. Um, other comic book fans might best know him. He took over the role, I think, of Thandral 
of one of the Warriors three in the last two Thor movies uh, in the Dark World, and he's in Ragnarok. Um, like we said, the film is directed by David F. Sandberg, who d- is responsible for Lights Out and Annabelle Creation, two pretty good horror films of the last two years. Due out in April 2019, we know that the antagonist to Shazam, although not necessarily in this first film, Dwayne Johnson, we've known, will play the antagonist Black Adam at some point. We don't know if it's going to be in this first film or not. Now, guys, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Zachary Levi or the Shazam character, but this is a big, major casting. We do have to talk about it. Uh, Nate, what do you think? Well, um, I'm assuming that he's only playing the Shazam part of the character. Because the the way that Shazam works, he's normally a 12-year-old kid, but when he says the magic word Shazam, he turns into a full-fledged superhero. It'll kind of depend on who plays the kid character to make a good movie out of it. Uh, and a superhero story, especially in origin, is only as good as its villain. So seeing The Rock in a villainous role that's not a Fast and Furious movie should be interesting. Um, I'm optimistic, but want a little bit more information about the plot of the movie before I get excited. Jake, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know much about uh, Zachary Levi at all, but I know that, that, like Nate said, the Shazam character is really, he's like a 10, 12-year-old boy or something like that. And like Nate said, when he says Shazam, he turns into this ultra powerful superhero. So I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool idea, and it's something new to a superhero movie that we haven't seen before, like a kid turning into one. Um, so I don't know how I feel about the casting choice. I don't know much about him. I think I don't know if I like The Rock as a villain personally. I think he's he's fun in in some movies as like a comedic action guy, but anything outside of that, his range, I don't think is huge. So I don't know how I feel about him, but. Um. Well, since you guys have never seen any of Chuck, I'll tell you that this casting is really good um, because in Chuck, he plays kind of this man-child. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. there you go. The nice. literal man-child. <laughs> exactly. Right. And Shazam will literally be a man-child. Um, he's got the muscle tone and the physique for it. He looks – he's a lot bigger than he used to be when he was on Chuck. Um, but, yeah, I think it's actually it's, – it's a name that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, if you had told me what the Shazam character was, I would I would think of a couple of names probably before that before Zachary Levi, but he's a name that fits really perfectly, and I think he will be a nice addition to a lighter side of the DCEU. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with the Black Adam casting thing, Jake. Um, you're right, The Rock doesn't really have or Dwayne Johnson. I'm sorry, he's a thespian now. Um, <laughs> uh, Dwayne Johnson doesn't have the best range. Uh, he's good at turning on the charm. Uh, I don't know how he'll be in a villainous role especially a superhero villainous role he's got the physique for it certainly but i don't i what was the last time he <laughs> he's got that down 10 i don't know <laughs> when was the last time he was a straight villain scorpion king he he wasn't a villain in that movie eh, I, unless you're talking the mummy well the mummy too when know. he played <laughs> the oh yeah yeah. King the, yeah you know what i mean yeah uh but yeah i think we all need to know more about shazam before we get really excited for it but like as far as casting goes it's a good choice it is. Yeah. I, I promise. We'll see how the magical Superman holds out. Uh, speaking of major franchises here, a little bit of a transition from superheroes to spies. There we go. Uh, Chuck was a spy, so there's a, your transition right there. Christoph Waltz, he was in Spectre, the latest James Bond movie. He played the head of Spectre, Blofeld, uh, in the revitalization of the character for the Daniel Craig series. We now know that he will not. he will officially not be returning for Bond 25, whatever it's called. Uh, he was asked about it at a red carpet event, and he said, sadly, that the role will be recast. Um, this will most likely be Daniel Craig's last time as James Bond. 
I don't know if that's absolutely confirmed or not, but it feels pretty inevitable. We thought Spectre might be the last time for a while. Yeah, we thought Skyfall was the last one before that. Yeah, true. Absolutely true. Uh, the movie is rumored to be called Shatterhand. Uh, there's rumors that the villain will be blind, that a lot of it will take place in Croatia, but we don't have any kind of confirmation of that stuff yet. Uh, so, guys, thoughts on Spectre, thoughts on Christoph Waltz in Spectre, and thoughts on the role being recast. Jake, let's start with you. Um, I was actually in a, my, in a minority a little bit. I thought Spectre was was not not great, but I thought it was it was pretty good when I first saw it. I know I was in the minority there. Um, but when I first found out uh, Christoph Waltz was cast as um, as the villain, I thought on paper that's perfect, but he didn't really do anything with it. So now that they're gonna recast it, it just maybe I don't know I don't know how I feel about it. I wouldn't want to know who they're recasting. What they're gonna do with the villain, what you know, what their story is, what Daniel Craig wants to do. I think it all feels a little odd and a little, you know, not quite handled well. Yeah, his his comments specifically on the red carpet made it sound like they already had someone in line. We probably won't find out who the, who that is for a while. But he said like, oh, they have a new guy coming in, and it's like, oh, okay, all right, that that's that then. Fuck me, right? Um, <laughs> Nate, what do you think? So. I really, I really like Christoph Waltz as a as an actor. I think he just oozes charm in all the best ways, um, and he can do it both ways as a good guy or a bad guy. So he seemed perfect for Spectre, and for the first half of the movie, I really, really liked him. But I think not necessarily a knock on Christoph Waltz, but a knock on the writing of the movie itself. They tried too hard to make him a master puppeteer over the last three movies to make it a whole Bond extended universe thing when they should have just had him be his own villain and it would have been great. So I'm actually kind of sad to see Christoph Waltz go, but I feel like it's totally the franchise's fault because they had gold and dropped it. They dropped it hard. You, you said exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> I was trying to get that out and couldn't quite get there, but yeah. Uh, I'm here to make you sound good. <laughs> like on paper, it sounds like a great choice, but it just, it's for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. And I don't, I, you're right. I don't think it was quite his fault. Spectre is one of those movies that when I first saw it, I was like, ah, that was all right. And it's a movie that I'm avoiding like the plague to rewatch because I, I know it's going to drop. I know it. Like I'm, it's one of those movies I'm confident will be worse on rewatch. And Christoph Waltz, I like him as an actor. I do. Um, but Nate, I'm not going to let him so off the hook here. His bad guy persona has kind of turned into shtick a little bit. Between Spectre, um, between Green Hornet, Three Musketeers, Legend of Tarzan was a big one. He oh, plays the movie. same kind of villain over and over and over again. Um, and that's really, it might be a nature, it might be the nature of typecasting. Um, you never know what goes on behind the scenes. He might not be getting the roles, but this is kind of might be a blessing in disguise for his career because he was doing the same stuff again in Spectre. Um, and again, that might just be the nature of what they wanted him to do and what the direction called for, but this gives him a fresh start and this gives the series a fresh start to let someone else do something different with it. That's a very good point, Drew. I like that a lot. I think I think Hollywood knew they had lightning in a bottle when he was so goddamn good in Inglorious Bastards. Right. Yeah. Like he Amazing. is he is beyond yeah. excellent. Um, Almost as good in Django, too. Yeah, and he pulls off the same character with a plum in Django Unchanged. I really, really liked him there too. Uh so you're right. 
Um, doing the same thing is not good for his career long term. I definitely want to see him do good roles. So he's uh, gonna be in the the mini movie in a minute, right? Uh, downsizing. <laughs> the mini movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see if he's able to get out of his typecast there and still be good. Um, that said, it seems like the best uh, the best franchise for him to be that classic villain that we loved was Bond. So it's a shame that it didn't work when they had the material there. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help when the script's dog shit. Exactly. It, it sounds like we're all in the same area as on, like, the idea, this idea. Like, we didn't like Christoph Waltz specifically in Spectre, but some of us want him back, some of us don't. Um, either way, we'll see what happens. Bond 25 coming to a theater near you, near you, I think 2019 is what they have it as. Pretty sure. Anyway, that'll do it for news, and it's time to move into our review of George Clooney's Suburbicon. Welcome to Suburbicon, a town of great wonder and excitement. You need to get up. There are men in the house. Mr. Lodge? Yes. You know a character named Rizzoli? He's a loan shark. This is the last time that clown's gonna ignore us. Take care of a kid. Nobody's free. I'm here to collect. What do you want? I want all of it. That was from the trailer for Suburbicon, the latest film directed by George Clooney, who's had a hit-and-miss filmography behind the camera. He directed films that are really well-regarded, like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night, Good Luck, and The Ides of March. He's had some misfires like Leatherheads and The Monuments Men. This is the first movie he's ever just been the director for. He's had a role in other movies, small roles. This is the only one. He's just been behind the camera. And he's got a hell of a script to work with. Uh, The reputation of the Coens brothers speak for themselves. They wrote this film, just to name a few. Fargo, Big Lebowski, Barton Fink, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Hail Caesar, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading. Are there any other big ones I'm missing? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Yeah, I think you got them. Um, So Clooney directing, Coen brothers writing, Matt Damon, Julianne Moore, Oscar Isaac starring. The film is set in the 1950s in a suburban utopia known simply as Suburbicon. It's actually from the perspective of a kid named Nicky. He's played by Noah Jupe. Matt Damon's his father, Gardner. He's a financial VP. He lives in Suburbicon. His house gets broken into. His wife, played by Julianne Moore, who also plays uh, the aunt of the kid in a double role. Uh, the wife gets murdered. The danger isn't done there. To say more would be a little spoilerly. Things are mysterious. The kid's right in the middle of it. Matt Damon's right in the middle of it. Meanwhile, a black family's moved next door, the only black family in Suburbicon. The neighbors are not very pleased about it. They take a lot of their anger out on this black family and blaming horrible, horrible events going on right now concurrent to Matt Damon's family on them. So that's a basic overview of what Suburbicon is. It's kind of a black comedy with social themes and commentary in it, and there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on here. Does it work? That's the question. Jake Hensler, what did you think of Suburbicon? So my my big synopsis for this movie basically is the cult, like you said, Coen Brothers' reputation speaks for themselves. It um with this with the writing and the story and the the humor and everything, I think I could tell what the Coen Brothers wanted this to be and where they wanted it to go. But it honestly, I felt like it was just not handled correctly by by Clooney. I think he got the material and the subject matter and just did not handle it as as the Coen Brothers style would. And it came out a little sloppy, a little 
a little messy um and just it didn't didn't really flow either like there were moments and it just felt a lot of unfulfilled potential to me you know nate what'd you think uh yeah i'm gonna echo the same kind of tones here uh this movie had a lot of potential but i found myself kind of bored and the two stories uh following the two different families here do not interconnect in a very cohesive way for a good movie uh you have the whole racial tensions from the Myers family uh, that had just moved in, but their story is thrown by the wayside and only briefly revisited in certain scenes that completely is disregarded by the Lodge family's story and Matt Damon's character and what he's going through. And uh, it's a shame because this movie has a really solid two different stories but it couldn't pick which ones it wanted to focus on, and it couldn't balance them in a cohesive manner. Not a huge fan. Yeah, okay. I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Um, <laughs> I, we're all completely on the same page. You can see the seeds of what the Coen brothers are trying to do here. It's a very topical, very timely film. Uh, George Clooney's a very vocal liberal. Very, very vocal. He's trying to channel the rage that comes with racism. And this movie is timely kind of on accident with what happened in Charlottesville uh, a couple months ago. For sure. Yeah, and it's it's kind of, kind of this, definitely this anger underneath it. All of the world's problems being blamed on minorities, even though they're innocent. There's the, those themes. There's the white people getting away with a lot of stuff themes. But the execution is just really underwhelming and really messy. It, it It's really disjointed movie, really heavy-handed movie. It kind of lacks in all of the important elements. Um, it lacks in story. It lacks in editing flow. It lacks in comedy. It lacks in character work. Um, it's not a terrible film, but it's just disappointing. And honestly, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to be mean. Jake, kind of, you kind of hit on this. This would be a better movie if the Coen brothers actually directed it. Yeah. I mean, if I think – not that I know everything about filmmaking, but if I, I think this is George Clooney's fault. I just don't think he handled the – the material well at all. I don't think he quite had a good grasp on what to do with it. Right. The big thing for me, this is listed as on, on Wikipedia, a American crime comedy film. And this movie reminded me of those YouTube videos where they take a movie and turn it into a different genre, like turning the shining into a comedy film or toy story into a horror film. This movie didn't have a clear idea of what it wanted to be because the plot is psychopathic. Matt Damon's character is a psychopath. Yet the music and the audio cues seem like it's a sitcom. It sounded like a Disney soundtrack or something like from Curb Your Enthusiasm with these weird little notes at the end of scenes that just didn't make sense and did not fit with the tone of the movie at all. The, see, I think that could have worked. I think that could have worked, that kind of contrast, but it takes someone really, really talented to do that, uh, to, to nail that balance. And look, I, I really like George Clooney as an actor, and he's made some good movies before. Ides of March is a really good political thriller, especially. Good Night and Good Luck is a really good drama, from what I understand. I've never seen it personally. But... This, this is a really, really tricky thing to ask for a director whose success rate is dangerously close to under 
it just doesn't work. It's just something's off throughout the entire thing. Um, there are so, there are good things here. The movie looks nice. I think the set design is really nice. So is the costuming. Um, the performance. None of the performances are bad. Uh, I think the only person who is excellent is Oscar Isaac. Personally, I hundred percent agree. I I think ev- nobody's bad. I think everybody's either fine to pretty good, except Oscar Isaac. The the minute he walks in. I, I love him. I thought he totally stole the movie from whatever scenes he had. Yeah. He comes in, he gives the movie a jolt, and then, you know, he's gone, you know? Yeah. He's, um, like he's, he's a just, side character. Yeah, he's a side character. A great side he's character, but he's not, he's not the main focus at all. But he comes in, and he's got he's got ten times more personality than anybody else in the movie has. Than, than anything in the movie. <laughs> Distinct personality. And he channels a specific character that I'm going to talk about in spoiler section from movie history that I really got, like, a nice sense of. Um, but yeah, everywhere else, Matt Damon's doing what he can, but his character is very, like, like you said, Nate, it's a very confusingly written character. Yeah, for sure. And I I really would love to see this split up into two different movies because I think both of them, uh, both of the stories that are featured here offer really great looks at different aspects of American life at this time. But it's not enough development on either side to make them a cohesive movie. Mm-hmm. Um, when you compare and contrast, even if you were talking a school essay, the point is to show um, some similarities and differences between the two subjects in a way that enhances your view of both subjects. This movie literally is just flip-flopping between two sides of two completely different coins, and it doesn't work. What it's what it's trying to do, what it's very pointedly trying to do, is make people angry. It's it's one of those movies that really, really wants badly wants to be a water cooler movie where people go and they talk about like, oh, this is what's going on in the world. Did you see that movie Suburbicon? It, it completely nailed it, and that's not working at all because audiences gave it a D minus this weekend and it made three million dollars. Um, but it really wants to be that movie where, you know, we get mad because these black people that did nothing wrong are getting all this crap from the community. Meanwhile, everybody else is running around chaotically and doing horrible, horrible things, and the repercussions are minor. It, that's what it wants to be, but it just lacks the intellect and it lacks the skill to actually nail that. Yeah, like anytime they were, they would focus on uh, the black family, not, not the whole movie, for a lot of the movie, I was just thinking, what is, okay, what does this have to do with the rest of the story? Where is this going what is why is this being interconnected with whatever this has like is there a big twist at the end what am i i'm totally missing what this black family has to do with anything going on with matt damon's family i was just not getting it until toward the end and you shouldn't be missing that because there i can i see what the connection is it's just the movie is not convincing making yeah. that connection yeah i was i was borderline i'm not i'm not it for the first act i think it picks up a little bit in the middle in the end but in the beginning i was like i what is this what is going on um this was this is the first movie that we reviewed that i've gone in completely blind i had not seen a single trailer not even the poster for this movie really good for you yeah i, I just knew nothing about it um so i'm obviously picking up on what the tones of the movies were in the first uh in the first half hour and I couldn't tell if it was trying to go the comedy route or the the thriller route or the drama route. And I still didn't really know when I walked out of the theater. I think in terms of the the topical subject matter, 
uh, Get Out did a much better job oh, of far showing racism within movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, be- because that's, like, current racism, you know? And how we're dealing with, like, the subtle racism in today's society. And that's something that we, as viewers, can try to change in ourselves or try to change in the world. When we see a movie like this, it, we can't do anything about it because that's how the past is operated. And all we can do is just get angry about it. But like you said, Drew, it doesn't even really succeed in getting us angry about it because we're just so lost throughout the movie as to what this film is trying to say. I co-signed that one million percent. You nailed it. That's awesome. Absolutely. Put me down on a writing staff. I'm in. Put you down on a writing staff. This is a good time to transition into our ratings, I think. Um, just to go down what our ratings are for people, if, if you happen to be new. We grade films based on a seat scale. A movie that we love, we give a royal throne to. Then we have our plush recliner. We have our wooden chair. Then we have our damp lawn chair. And then we have our, what's the last one? Help me out here. Sleazy Outhouse, right? There you go. <laughs> yes. I gave it last week, so I should know. I'm the only person to have given it. Maybe not for long. We'll see. Um, but those are our ratings. Uh, that's our rating system. Let's Nate, let's pivot back to you. What do, what would you give Suburbicon? I'm giving Suburbicon a damp lawn chair. Um, this was a dull movie at the beginning and had a lot of holes throughout the movie in terms of tone, which is one of my biggest critiques of every movie i watch if it doesn't have a good tone i'm not going to enjoy it (laughs) i'm noticing that about you (laughs) um so damp lawn chair for me it had the potential to have a really good story here even two separate stories i'd watch both of these movies individually with a little bit more time with all the characters but we just don't get that here with suburbicon and it's a shame because there's a lot of talent going into it um yeah ditto you can see you can see the the in the script. You can see the Coen Brothers fingerprints all over this, like like the the shocking violence, the dark humor, the you know the the messages it gets across. You know, it's their style in the script is all over it. It just was very mishandled. I'm gonna go with the uh, damp launch hair as well. Not quite Geostorm damp, but damp. No, can you imagine like the people that made Burn after reading making this? Uh, I don't care. It's 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 missed opportunity. The movie is yeah, what it is. Yep. Yeah, it it could have been amazing. It could have been great, but I it unfortunately I hate to keep harping on it, but it comes to George Clooney's shortcomings as a director. Um, he just doesn't seem to know how to balance this admittedly tricky mixtures of genre. Um, it it looks nice. The acting's not bad. I dispute you a little bit, Nate. I wasn't bored, um, but I think that was just because I kept waiting for it to really be the movie that it needed to be and it's just not taking off um i'm gonna give it, it it's that kind of it's that kind of lawn chair you see at ikea and it's really nice but the the ceiling's leaking so by <laughs> definition it's a damp lawn chair it's a nice damp lawn chair yeah but it, it yeah. is a damp lawn chair so we're all in agreement on this one um that'll do it for our regular review of suburbicon it's time for us to shift into our spoiler section if you have not seen suburbicon you can tune out now it, but we suggest that you don't see it. Um, so you can join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So, Nate, I think it was a good thing that you didn't watch the trailer. Because, Jake, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but the trailer spoils. Yeah. Pretty it, most of the I movie. didn't realize how much of a spoiler this this the trailers were for this movie. I'm I'm generally mad that the trailer showed him eating a PB and J because as soon as it was put down on the table, I knew the rest of the movie. I knew yep. the entire and rest of the movie absolutely. as soon as that happened. And I was like, Are you gonna you'd be kidding me? Well, I picked up on that too. As soon as he sat down in front of it at the end there. No, I before knew. that, oh. as soon as as soon as Julianne oh, so Julianne Moore, making it? Okay. As soon as Julianne Moore makes the PB and J, I go, Okay. Cause she's not in the shot in the trailer, so I know she dies. He comes in, talks to the kid, he's PB and J dies, and there's your movie. Oh, wow. like, come on. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's in the middle of the trailer. It's in the middle of the trailer, and it's used as like a like a cute little joke. Yeah, like a, like a comedy thing. First of all, the trailer is misleading. I understand why this movie is a D minus because it makes Matt Damon look like this hero that's taking back. His yeah, life. absolutely. But really, he he is a piece of shit. Yep. Oh my! God. In this movie, yeah, the he threatens to kill his kid. Nate, yeah. you should watch the trailer oh and God. see how misleading it is. The trailer makes it look like he's the hero of the film, and I. I it's a clever, it's an interesting misdirection because how do you sell a movie where he's a complete horrible person, yeah. um, but is trying to that kill gets his wife killed just for the insurance money? That kind of person. That's hard to sell. I understand with Matt Damon as your big lead, but this trailer just lies to audiences completely about what his character is. Huh. Um, he exemplifies what white privilege is, basically. The one scene that I really really liked in the movie. Um, was when we were cutting back and forth between the riots going outside the Myers house and then Lodge dealing with um, the the murders on his house. There's a scene where they are all fighting for their lives um, at the Myers house. And then all of a sudden there's uh, Matt Damon dragging out the insurance guy with a thing thrown through his eye in the middle of a street and nobody's watching. Yeah. And like, that's where the movie's trying to get its point. White people can literally get away with murder when their anger is focused on minorities. That is yeah. what the movie's trying to do. They literally murdered someone in the street. It's a shame that it is the only scene where those two stories really click and you can see the compare and contrast working. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I One small thing about that scene, just like a like it's not even really on topic or anything, but not clever, but kind of gross detail. When he has the thing, he's stuck in his yeah. face, and he tries to pull it, and you see the yeah. skin come up a little. I was like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's gross. <laughs> yeah, that's pure Coen Brothers, too. Yeah, ex- I, exactly. I like that and that's where I can see it. I'm like, this this has the, the shocking violence that Coen Brothers have. This has what's supposed to be dark dark humor like Coen Brothers. It's got, you know, it's got the, the money. You know, he's trying to get the insurance money from, or, or you know, it has that tone about it like Fargo does. Um, like it's got those those tones that the Coen brothers tend to use, but it just does not does not work with a different director. And then I was starting to enjoy it in the second act. I was trying to go with it, and it just didn't wrap up for me in the third. See, I kind of I felt like it was it was kind of consistent through, consistently mediocre throughout for me. Um, another part of the theme that the movie kind of underplays is okay, Matt Damon and Julianne Moore. Uh, Alive Julianne Moore, not dead Julianne Moore. Right. That's the the aunt. Especially yeah. when they both get yes. blonde. <laughs> yeah, that was just weird. Yeah, it, it was strange. Um, but the two of them are trying to take the insurance money and go to Aruba. Um, and there's that theme there that, like, white people get handed all of this, all of this stuff, all of this beautiful paradise, and yet they still want more. Um, but the movie doesn't do enough with that either. 
Um, I personally, for my money, the best scene in the film, and Jake, I think you might agree with me here, because uh, uh, it was Oscar Isaac's introduction scene. Um, yeah. The movie has a lot of patience. It takes its time. And what scene, did it remind you of a scene? Any scene in movie history? I don't know. I mean, maybe. <laughs> in movie history? <laughs> Read my mind right now. Well, yeah, it's like okay. a, it's, throw me, throw me it's a, a little. It's a classic. Um, okay, I'm, I'm just going to tell you. Um, it reminded me a lot of Christoph Waltz's introduction in Glorious Bastards. I was wondering if that's, I actually was wondering if that's where you were going. Yeah, it he can't he comes in, he he acts all polite at the beginning. He he takes coffee or whatever. He just asks them questions. He's writing in the notebook down to them writing the details in the notebook. But you can feel something was going on mm-hmm. underneath it. And again, the movie misleadingly in its trailer makes him look like he's part of the mob right. when he's not. Yeah, he's not. But like then he ended all. up being a bad guy anyway. Yeah, yeah, but in a different way. A different yeah. way. Yeah. Um, when he gets poisoned, he sprints outside. Who runs like that when they get poisoned? I, I guess if your throat's closing and burning and... Yeah, he's he's dying and looking for yeah. help. He's not going to find it in the house. I guess. But, like, he picks up sprinting. I think in Oscar Isaac's eight minutes of screen time, he steals the show. Or however long he was... He, he, he got time. Like, he probably came in, filmed for a day, got a nice paycheck, and left. And I think he steals yeah. the show in whatever scenes he's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed him. Um, and what Nate was saying, when the black family's being tormented and um, all the chaos is going on at uh, at the Lodge household or whatever their name is, yeah, I, I would also agree that that was probably the high point of the movie for me as well. I forgot to harp on that. but I yeah. feel like there there wasn't – like it's hard to really care about anybody in the movie because a lot of them are – like pretty much every adult character is a horrible person. Every for, single one it feels like except for the Byers family. <laughs> Not not every single one though, because it felt like we needed more scenes with Uncle Mitch. I agree, but even I he was um, he was obnoxious at first though. Like he ended up being a really good guy in the end. But at first, I was like, "Who is this idiot? Like not giving any good advice at a funeral?" Yeah, but he he's the one that clearly cares about this kid, and there's definitely an emotional through line there. There's a, there's a, again there's another theme that could really been exploited about father figures um, that the movie just does not use. He, he's called upon literally. Literally called upon when they need him to come yeah, and save yeah. the day. By the way, in the trailer, Nate, when he pulls out the guy from under the bed and kills him, they make it look like it's Matt yeah. Damon with Eddie. Huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all over the place as far as marketing disconnect. Speaking speaking of confusing Matt Damon vibes, um, one of the low points for the movie for me, um, where I really checked out, um, is the scene when he comes back and Julianne Moore the second one is dead and he's walking through the house, like looking at the corpses and sad music is playing, but we know that this guy's a psychopath. Why are we supposed to be sympathizing him with the musical score here? We should be, it should be horror yeah. music because the kid has to deal with his killer dad in the house. And it's that yeah. tone. That's just flat out wrong. That really annoyed me about this movie, especially in the score. The score failed on all fronts for me. It was not what it was supposed to be. It all comes back again to consistency. If the movie for the entire time had us with Matt Damon's character as kind of an anti-hero, like a Jordan Belford or a uh, uh, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, like, okay, if, if we're supposed to think of him that way through the entire thing, fine. But it's a matter of, like you said, like you've hammered in, Nate, 
tone, consistency, execution. Those three things are lacking here. I think we should get on to our final thoughts here. Um, Jake, what did you think? Final thoughts on Suburbicon. I, I really could have seen some potential. Like, you know, I it the the script really reminded me, you know, parts of the script really reminded me of like of Fargo and Burn After Reading, and some of them were fun classic Coen Brother movies. But man, if they're gonna write something like this, they gotta direct it too, because clearly other people have trouble handling their material. And that's you know, it sounds like a broken record, but um that's that's about that's the most I can say about it. If they're gonna write something special like this, they have to do it themselves. The thing they wrote remember they wrote Bridge of Spies yeah. two two years ago. People forget that, and they handed it to Spielberg. And even then he they didn't get probably the best results they yeah, could have out of it. I agree. It's a good point. It's just they and have that's a very Spielberg unique voice. Versus George Clooney, who, like you said, Drew, not the greatest track record here. Yeah. Uh just to wrap up my thoughts here. Um Suburbicon had Really good potential. It had two different stories that just don't mesh together. And a lot of this movie is all about just the cohesive mesh not working. Um, And it's a shame. I'd love to see these characters um, in some other story um, just to see what a good version of this would look like. But this is not going to be your movie. Right. Um, We're all on the same page this week. Uh, this is probably one of the most disappointing movies of the year, just given the talent that's involved. Uh, it's It doesn't really fall in an area where it pleases anyone. I see what it's trying to do. It's it's clear in what it's trying to do, but it's just like watching... It's like taking your kid to dancing, and they really love dancing, but they're just not good at it. Instead of a peanut <laughs> butter and jelly, they're making peanut butter and jelly on like multigrain bread with crunchy peanut butter and apple jelly. And it's just not what you want on your sandwich, man. <laughs> right. And the tones go together like sardines and ice cream. You know what I will say as a as a final thoughts PS, I would watch a black comedy movie about Oscar Isaac's character just going to families like this and mess and messing with them and getting money out of it. I would watch that movie. Ten out of ten. Centered around <laughs> Oscar Isaac's character. I would watch that. Jake, there's a great black comedy out right now. It's called Boo Too, a Medea right, Halloween. You can go fuck yourself. Final thoughts. And then, <laughs> that's Jake's final that's Jake's final thoughts of the night, and that will do it for this week's episode of the Middle Seeds Podcast. Uh, but before we go, Nate, how can they find us on the internet? All right, here's the scoop, everyone. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats, and our email for any questions, comments, or suggestions at themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. Anything you do to help the channel grow is greatly appreciated. If you have not already, please check out our spinoff show and the latest episode of Freeze Frame, where we jump in our time machine and review a film from the distant or not-too-distant past. Last week, we talked about the disaster film The Day After Tomorrow. That is available on our YouTube channel. This week, in the George Clooney-Matt Damon theme, Clooney jumps back in front of the camera with Matt Damon. We review the slick and stylish heist blockbuster, Ocean's Eleven. Next week on the main show, it's a big one. We're really excited to finally be able to talk about Thor Ragnarok. That'll do it for us. For Jake Hensler and for Nate Lungarini, I'm Andrew Oje. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.